Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Troy Tittlemeyer, co-host of PBE Podcast. Uh, this is a quick recording we did with DRW, uh, David Ramsden Wood. We were going to go live, but it didn't work out, so we got a recording here. Uh, we talk about what's going on in his world and uh, catch up with him, and then we do a, an unconventional well economics, so single well economics on, on kind of how our wells need to perform if, for us to have a chance to make money. But more importantly, I think there's a, a chance to drastically increase our ability to uh, to make better wells, and uh, and that's going to change the economics. So it was a cool conversation for sure. And then the last thing, the PBE guys are going to be along with MagmaCam for the next several weeks. Every Thursday, we're learning the most progressive geoscience. We're attacking it from every angle, trying to make sense of it, and trying to use it to make new discoveries. So check out MagmaCam Research Institute. It's magmacamri.org. This is where you can find all the publications that they've been making for the past 50 years, plus obviously the UDH webinar series is this is where you can find access to that as well so hope to see you there and uh, hope you enjoy the show with drw i i figure first of all david ramson wood i appreciate you taking the time to uh to to do this man and sit uh, and share this time with us with pbe we got this kind of the last live show we probably do this year and we're just going to do some fundamental podcast stuff, bringing in guests and the unique contacts we have to keep wrestling this uh, this interesting perspective we have that uh, that geology is is progressing really really fast, which is exciting. Um, but obviously, tell us a little bit about what happened with LinkedIn. There's definitely something there that we need to talk about. Yeah, it's cra- it's crazy. And and I, first of all, Troy, I appreciate you having me on. And sorry about the uh, the snafu. So. The reason for the snafu, if you haven't been following, so I've been obviously on, on LinkedIn for two years doing the, the hashtag hot take of the day. And as, as many who were there in the beginning know, and uh, this was a very organic uh, experience. And so I wrote what came to my mind. Most of the time it was on oil and gas. Um, even in the beginning, I really wasn't writing about oil and gas very often. And then at NAEP 2019, um, we had a huge spike in views because I was writing about oil and gas. And so rather than me picking the topic, then everyone sort of wanted me to write more about deals. And then we invented Technical Tuesday. And then we had the beating series over the summer. And it was just a very organic thing. And, and so some people say, well, David, as a, as a social media influencer, you have a, a mandate. You have a responsibility to the kids to like only say things that are neutral and i'm like but dude the whole reason that people read it is because i don't say anything neutral and if you read things you don't like block me or think about it or debate me but nonetheless linkedin in their infinite wisdom uh sent blocked me from the platform on monday last week and i inquired as to why and they sent me four emails which are on my website like four things and it was all about like contextually me saying over the last four months that there's virtually zero chance of a healthy under 50 year old dying of coronavirus. Now the CDC has released stats that say 99.998% of people who get a recover in that age group or whatever. And yet LinkedIn is saying I'm propagating false information. And so it's, it's truly, it's truly shocking. So, the battle continues on the social media censorship, and we'll see what we do, but that's, um, that's where it stands. 
Wow. Where can we find that on the website, the social so media? If you go under my blog, so if you click at the top, uh, yeah, right there, perfect. Hot take of the day. Um, there's a kind of series here, but the first one that summarizes is right below the annual golf tournament, so September 23rd, LinkedIn versus DRW. And you'll see I've included what their email was. Now, this first one is amazing. It's Scott Atlas wrote an article that was published on the Hill. Uh, he is a doctor and as near as I can tell is a fellow at Stanford. I've connected to him on Twitter. I'm going to have him on my podcast. The, th the first three paragraphs were directly from his article. All of them were cited. It is his article that I reposted and they said that that highlighted in black is false information. Now, almost no risk. Who has definition of almost? That is actually a factual statement, but LinkedIn is saying that that is patently false. Therefore, I violated their user agreement with that. Now, the second one, I had a little fun with Bartolo Colon, one of my favorite players. He wears a size 48 stretchy pant. <laughs> the dude is not an athlete. Now, also, the Major League Baseball has been testing 13,000 players headed into the start of the season. And so what I said was the baseball players have existed. We're taking wicked, wicked testing. So you can scale that up to society. And there are no baseball players who have died or been hospitalized. And they represent more of the average American. So what is wrong with that? The proof, COVID is nothing to be scared of for the average American, not over 65. Now, I made a little joke, herpes. Yeah, I would be scared of herpes. But, and, and the context around the herpes thing is universities are now asking students who go back to campus to get tested for coronavirus. Okay. Now, last time I checked on college campuses and also in nursing homes are the leading places where STDs exist. If we just all wore condoms and didn't have extramarital affairs, we could eradicate STDs. So why shouldn't we test every college kid before going on campus to make sure they don't have gonorrhea and do the same test in nursing homes and then STDs would be a thing of a past because <laughs> it's not constitutionally allowed to just go mandate tests. That's what the second one was. The third one, they don't even highlight what is false. And the fourth one is factually correct. Everyone has seen it. The CDC released findings that only 6% of deaths in the United States were caused by COVID. Now, the other ones had 2.6 comorbidities, which meant that if you didn't have an underlying health condition, COVID was the only cause of death. People would have probably read that in Florida, a 30-year-old or so was on a motorcycle. He died and had yeah. COVID, and the death certificate said with COVID. But he was in a motorcycle accident. So right. that is patently correct. Word for word, that statement is on the CDC website. Word for word. And LinkedIn, through some political discrimination, don't like that I'm pushing a narrative that coronavirus right. is not scary. And so they have banned me for false information. Now, I don't monetize the hot take of the day. And quite honestly, I'm sort of retired and we're going to talk about oil and gas eventually. But like, I don't really think there's a job in oil and gas for me that I need LinkedIn for. 
But the concept <laughs> is that censorship in the media, who is Daniel at LinkedIn who's deciding that these things are full and therefore I violated the user agreement. And if media companies can screen everybody's information, it's 1984 and we might as well be China. So I'm seriously considering a lawsuit against LinkedIn because this is not what our society should be. If people disagree, let's have a debate. That's but right. don't flag this and then kick me off a platform. That is unacceptable. Yeah, no, no, no. Especially someone that is so comfortable with the debate and making it not you know, irate, just ridiculous, you know, waste of time, commentary, uh, debates or arguments or comments, right? It's, you're willing to talk about everything that you say in whatever context it needs to be when it gets to that point. And they're, they're saying, well, we don't even want that. We don't, we don't want someone on here telling everybody that, uh, that COVID's not, not a big deal. And I don't know, man. I mean, why they would do that is, is weird. I don't want, I don't really care to get into that um, as far as like why they're pushing that. The, uh, the more important part is that we, uh, we, we get a move on with David Ramsden Wood through hot take of the day, through the podcast, through what you're doing on the website how are you going to make the transition or, or what are your, your immediate goals with the transition for David Ramsden Wood? What are you up to, man? You know, so, so we've been very fortunate that, uh, and producer Glenn was the one who pushed me, but we put all the archive content uh, of my LinkedIn hot take of the day going back to January 1st of 2019, which wow. was the, the earliest I could download. A hundred percent of every single post I've ever done is on the website. And so I, I did that so that people could fact check and see when I made a prediction in 2019 about something that was going to happen, how did that play? And so in the archives, you can go see, um, if you just click hot take of the day, you can archive by topic. There it is on the right. Um, scroll down just, just a bit. Uh, keep going. Keep going. There you go. There's the categories. Um, so you can see by anything that you want to investigate what I wrote on and what the topics were. If you want to see when I called peak oil, what my projections for oil prices were, politics, Saudi Arabia, fracturing, beatings, all of it is there and then by month. And, and the thought there was, you know, I want to engage in debate. And if I'm wrong, I want people to be able to call me on it. And so that was the most controversial, the peak oil USA. So in September of 2019, I had looked at the data and all of it's here that showed that number one, productivity enhancements on a lateral length adjusted basis were not occurring. Number two, inventories were declining, which to me showed that in the US we weren't actually producing all that we needed. Um, and then the final point, which is the, the decline rates, if you look at the wedge of every well brought on in 2014 and then the underlying decline, and then 2015 and the underlying decline and 2016, et cetera. Those, this table in there shows the rate of decline of the wedge. And what it was showing was that in every basin, we were drilling too tight. So the decline rates of wells in 2014 for the first four months of that wedge in the next year. So I walked through the technology or the methodology the decline rate was shallower, 
but industry was running out of inventory, as you and I both know. And mm -hmm. so if you used to drill wells in 2014, 1,500 feet apart, and then in 2016, you drilled them 1,000 feet apart, and then in 2017, you drilled them 800 feet apart, the decline rate of the wedge was steepening in every single basin. And so when you could no longer drill longer laterals because you'd maxed every basin out at 10,000 feet except for the Delaware, and I also have data that I put out on that, the only way that you could dr get more production was to drill more wells. And in 2019, it was all free cash flow. So in September of 2019, I said, the U.S. has peaked forever in U.S. oil. Forever. I thought it would be 12.6 million barrels a day. It turns out that it was 12.8 million barrels a day in November, so two months off. And between November and March, where there was no coronavirus impact, the EIA 914 production report shows that every single month, the U.S. production declined. Now, March came, fracks dropped, capital went away, prices dropped, and now we've seen something. But the fundamental thesis that I had, which is why I was long CDEV going into the beginning of the year, was that the US, everyone thought, Reistad used to say the US would get to 15 million barrels a day. And I said, absolutely zero chance. 12.6 <laughs> is the most ever. And so uh, I said the world would be short a million barrels a day. The world expected a million barrels a day of growth. And so I said oil was gonna be $60 all this year. And I was right except coronavirus happened. So yeah, all, all of details. that stuff's on the website. Man, so that's, that's pretty amazing, dude. Your, uh, your ability to keep all this together and, and keep it in context and then deliver a, an actual message that, that makes sense. My question on this whole peak oil thing is, what is holding back the world from like massive growth where we just need roads and buildings and hospitals and schools and pipelines. We need to just build infrastructure like crazy in every country across all borders. Everyone wants 24 hour laptops and clean water. When, what's holding us back from this massive demand? So now I want to be very clear. I do not believe the world has peaked in oil demand. I believe that the US, fueled by cheap debt coming out of the financial crisis in 2009, used $300 billion of debt loaned by banks to develop assets at $100 a barrel that worked at $100 a barrel. Right. And in 2014, when OPEC opened the taps for reasons that are related to Russia, which is also on the website, we won't digress, but they drove oil prices to 30, and created a situation where U.S. oil producers could never, ever come out of the burden of debt. Now, wow. there are people like EOG and Pioneer who have a very conservative balance sheet. There are people like Exxon who have access to incredibly cheap debt. And I did a post on Technical Tuesday last week on ExxonMobil, and it talked about their sources and uses of cash in the first half of this year. And those who think Exxon is financially strong should look at that post. If you just hit search there, oh, it doesn't oh, I'm, I'm back in, I'm going back. No, no, just because it's so fascinating because this is the core issue and that people get confused on like the narrative versus, so type in Exxon, enter. 
This is the beautiful thing. You want to search any company I've ever written about? It's all here, baby. Man, that's pretty amazing. This platform's did search. Yeah, it did. Uh, she's and so oh, it's spinning. It's spinning. It's saying it's amazing, dude. You were able to take everything from everything LinkedIn. Everything I ever posted on LinkedIn was, and we were storing it on the website. So there we go. So Exxon Technical Tuesday. Now, sometimes I do much, much longer uh, posts. Um, but, but of late I was trying to make them fit in the 1300 characters of LinkedIn. So I didn't get too wordy. Uh, but here we go. First half of 2020 Exxon generated 6.3 billion of cash from operations. They spent investing in capital 11.5, which shows you there's a $5.2 billion difference between the amount that they were spending and the amount that they were cash flowing. Now people would say, yeah, but David in April prices were low. But I would say in January, February, March, prices were, if everyone can remember way back a thousand days ago, <laughs> oil was 60. So the average price over the year, which I talk about was 36.78, which is basically what we are today. So the first half of the year is pretty representative of what the current prices are. And they spent $5.2 billion more cash to investing. Then they paid $7.5 billion of dividends. And to fund that, they financed $22.5 billion of new debt at low interest rates. Oh, now, I like Exxon a lot, but like, if you ever have to pay your debt back, that's what they did in the first six months. So the reason investors believe that their dividend will be cut is because even if their dividend was zero, they need to borrow $5 billion a quarter. If you believe oil prices are going higher, well, the current strip says oil is only going to be 43, which is 20% higher than what their average first half price was. So then the overarching question is in the US, does any shale play on scale that matters to Exxon make money investing new dollars at 40? And I would say, and we're going to talk about that, no. So 100% of that $11.5 billion is at best making a 10% rate of return. That is, that's the math. Then you look at their asset value, which a lot of people on Twitter, although I'm becoming friends with the people on Twitter again, <laughs> I always talked about the standardized measure of oil and gas, which is smog. Yeah. And the smog of Exxon, they take the present value of all of their existing cash flows, and then they run a five-year development plan at a set price. And at the year end 2019, that set price was $55 a barrel oil and $257. They also include the number of CapEx they use, which is $135 billion. Their run rate of CapEx at 23 billion means that they had six years of PUDs booked. So you can't say, that like, oh, they have all this inventory they're not talking about because we're only using a 10% discount rate. We're using a $55 flat price. If you take their smog of $90 billion, you deduct the debt, you're left with a NAV at 55 of Exxon of about $13 a share. If I use the same valuation for Valero, a pure play midstream, sorry, refiner, and I bolt that on, they have 560 of there. So the total NAV of Exxon is 1885, 10% discount rate at $55 a barrel oil. They trade at $35. 
Exxon, in my opinion, not investment advice, should be trading at between eight and $10 a share, and their dividend should be zero, which means Exxon stock should fall 75% below where it is right now, and so should Chevron, and so should Concho, and so should EOG, and so should Pioneer. Now, I'm not knocking wow. on the companies. I'm just saying from a net asset value, if we have 10,000 acres, and 100 wells we can drill that cost 10 million bucks a well. Right. We run that in a model with a price deck, and it's worth what it's worth. It's not Tesla. It's not Google. It's not Netflix. It's very <laughs> tangible. That is why I personally have all of my money that I, when I sold out in the run in June, when oil went to 40 and the world changed and coronavirus and demand, I sold out when CDEV ran up to 215 and I took all of that money and I went short the entire sector. And that investment is up 80% and I anticipate it will continue to go. I do not give investment advice. Don't get mad at me if you bought the wrong stock. But this <laughs> is my theory as to why oil and gas is not investable which is different than the conversation we're going to have on a single well economics and how people should think through that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the, the performance of, uh, of, of the oil and gas industry, specifically the profit margins are going to skyrocket when technology catches up to modern concepts and what's really going on to unlock these wells. Uh, and so th that's, that's five years, 10 years. I don't know what that is. You gotta, it's as fast as the technical team and engineers can actually understand what their reservoir is telling them. They can see this drastic change in profit margins that for sure is happening. And, and it's just happening on a really slow scale right now. Cause people are still skeptical about removing everything that they learned and thought they knew about these reservoirs and what made it work and incorporating completely new ways of thinking, completely new ways of designing how to develop a field. It's totally different, man. The future looks nothing like the past when we eventually get there. And will Exxon do it? I don't know. And so tell us, so this is the key point. If you borrowed money to buy a house in Midland in 1985 at the peak and you borrowed $300,000, if you think about what happened to that house price and the economy in Midland until 2010, you had to have the financial capability to pay the interest on your mortgage and absorb the loss in the house for 25 right. years. Now, Exxon may have the sticking to it power to benefit from when oil goes to 60. But every half year, they're spending $5 billion more than they have which means they're ramping up debt and debt always gets paid back before the shareholders. And so, yes, will oil go to 60? It will for sure. But will the American companies that currently exist with the current shareholders be around to benefit? I would say that what you've seen with whiting, what you've seen with unit, what you're seeing with extraction, what you're seeing with all the bankruptcies is they wipe out the shareholders the debt gets converted to equity and then whoever owned the debt owns the assets today. And so again, we have to bifurcate the equity ownership in the company versus the value of the commodity that they sell. And over the long term, will they make a profit? Maybe, but it yeah, might yeah. go through three owners. The homeowner in 1985 got crushed. The homeowner in 2000 and 
2002 got crushed. The homeowner in 2010 that sold in 2018 killed it. The guy that bought it in 2018 is getting crushed. So that's Jeez. the cyclicality of equity. Wow. No, that's, that's a good way of thinking about it, man, for sure. That's, that's an eye opener on how this is actually going to go as it's just not realistic to see this drastic performance change in the near future. So, you know, I, I've, I had this idea for a while that, uh, you know, everybody, well, not everybody, but I, th- I feel like the, the safe assumption was no matter what price is, make sure you can, you can operate and you're, you're making money at $50 oil with whatever you do. Uh, I think that number moving forward is, is maybe like 35 or something, huh? I mean, I think that's the case in coronavirus. And a lot of people wrote me and they said, David, you have a responsibility to talk about things. Well, you don't pay me, so no, I don't. (laughs) I don't like when you talk about coronavirus. It's very saddening to me. I don't agree with you. I stick to oil and gas. And I said, so in order to understand oil and gas, you have to understand coronavirus because coronavirus for 45 days drove world oil demand from 100 million barrels a day to 65 million barrels a day, which in the history of oil, we have never had a 35% reduction in demand. Now, the world didn't react, as we know, until May. OPEC did not cut 10 million barrels a day of production until May. In fact, the Saudis ramped up March 8th in response to the Russians saying, eh, OPEC's kind of an every man for yourself. So when oil was 52 March 6th, March 5th, the Russians said, eh, oil went to 40. The Saudis came out on the weekend and said, instead of cutting oil, we're going to grow 2 million barrels a day. And they ramped the taps to 12 million barrels a day for 45 days before they cut May 1st and they realized the world was like actually fucked. Pardon my French. And so 45 million barrels, 35 million barrels a day over 45 days meant we overproduced 1.5 billion barrels of oil in a 45 day period. Now, in January, when China started locking down, their demand went from 13 million barrels a day to 10. You remember that way long ago? Mm-hmm. When Chinese demand dropped 3 million barrels a day, oil, which went into January at $63, and we assassinated an Iranian general with a missile, oil went from 63 to 50 over 30 days because 3 million barrels a day were taken off the market. That's $12 a barrel. You take that 3 million barrels a day divided into 1.5 billion barrels of excess oil, that's 500 days that banks and tanker owners and financial players can sell their 3 million barrels excess back to the market just to get back to where the inventory levels were and they depress prices $12 below where they should be. So a lot of people would say, well, the marginal cost of a barrel in the U.S. is maybe 42, in Russia is 42. In Saudi, they always like to include social costs, but that doesn't really matter because the government owns the company. But regardless, Hmm. $12 a barrel off of a $42 means that oil needs to be $30 a barrel for 500 days to get capital investment off the market and oil off the market so the market can go back to a balanced supply demand. 500 days puts us mid 2022. How many US EMP companies have zero rigs and zero completions going right now? So that exacerbates the trend, which is why over the next 500 days until the world rebalances, 
US EMP should be spending zero on drilling and zero on completions. But wow. the problem is with 40% base declines, their cash flow drops 40%, which means they miss their debt covenants, which means they get pushed into bankruptcy, which means their equity gets wiped out to zero. And even when the board gives Brad Hawley $6.4 million three days before they declare bankruptcy because of his importance to the organization, it turns out when the creditors actually take over the board four days later, 90 days later, they said, actually, he's not really that important. So we're gonna pay him another 2 million as a severance and we're going to bring lynn peterson in who ran kodiak before whiting bought them in 2014 which was the beginning of the end of whiting no fault to lynn but that's what we saw so the incentive wow. of the management team is i like my two million dollar a year salary i'll never get another job i would like to survive as long as possible and it's the rare exception like noble who sold the Chevron and WPX who just merged with Devon of management teams who are like, you know what? I get paid a lot of money. I have a lot of money. I don't really need to work. The only way that my company doesn't go to zero is for me to merge and cut heads. So I'm going to do that. And I think WPX and Devon talked about that on the, the conference call yesterday is social issues uh, are the things that are preventing companies from coming together. But at the core, if oil is only 40, and as we'll see in the example, Companies are not making money when oil is 40 and no one is hedging so that, you, so that you're always at the whim of does OPEC open the taps, close the taps, do this, do that. Yeah. So two years until the market's appropriately balanced where OPEC can just drive, you know, up, down, in, out. Woo so, boom, hot take of the day, baby. Take it off LinkedIn, I'm coming in. Ha! Let's go. All right, man. Let's run a single well economic and an unconventional play. I know you said you have until nine, right? Or 10 your time. Okay. I do. So we got five minutes. I want everyone to understand how easy this is. People misunderstand. Now, Troy, you and I would agree. The science is very challenging. The science is challenging and there's a lot of work that goes into it, but our business at the core is very easy. You have rocks that was put there 300 million years ago. You look at all the analogies of which thousands of wells a month were coming on. You look at how close they were drilled. You look at the EUR of those wells. You monitor that EUR over five years to see interference. You figure out how many wells you can put in volumetrically based on a reasonable recovery factor. And then you drill them as cheap as possible to get the type curve that was set 300 million years ago using <laughs> frac technology that isn't really changing. And then oil price matters. So the only two variables you control is how much does it cost to drill them? how much the oil price is and in there it's how close did i drill my wells so i have an example which i'm going to share on my screen and i apologize to everyone when i get excited i speak very fast and so you may have to listen to this a lot or you just be annoyed and you don't have to and you can read it at your own leisure but here we go screen one share can everyone see that it's an excel spreadsheet okay this is very simple so i want everyone to just kind of contemplate this now I think that the best well in the Permian Basin is probably 104. Now, of course, there's 200 barrel of foot wells like the Raspberry up in Lee County that's up in the Potash area. So there's exceptions. Everyone was like so excited about Devon's Boundary Raider wells. Yeah. yeah, they had some really, really high IPs. But when I forecasted them right off the bat, I was like, they're 150 barrels a foot. Same as every other well in that area. They just have really nice IPs. And if you look at the decline rate, that's actually where the Boundary Raiders are coming in. So I really believe that about the best wells in the Permian are 140, but we're gonna talk about the scale. Number two, because the vertical well is $4 million to create or $3 million to create, the facility 
is 500,000 to a million to create. There's H2S in some plays that you need to manage. You need pipeline infrastructure, pads, water, everything. Let's also say that from an economic standpoint, 10,000 feet is the correct lateral length to maximize economics. Now, could it go to 15,000 feet? Maybe. But for now, we can say one mile laterals aren't great. One and a half mile laterals, you can do better. And two mile laterals are shown that with our stage completions, you can basically get the same completion across everywhere and they don't really degrade. And anyone who says they degrade is picking and choosing data because the science doesn't make sense that it should degrade, but I digress. So we're gonna drill a 10,000 foot lateral. So we have 140 foot as the best. I'm gonna apply a 71% scalar factor just so that you know it's more of an average well in the Permian. So that's 100 barrels a foot. A two mile lateral is 10,560 feet. Assuming we don't back build because there's some lease restrictions, you're gonna lose 700 feet on the curve. And with the setbacks, you're gonna leave 100 feet at the toe. So 10,560 feet minus roughly 600 feet, we'll just call it a 10,000 foot lateral, okay? So 10,000 feet times 100 barrels a day uh, foot is a 1 million barrel lateral. With me so far? Yeah. Perfect. Now, I'm using a BO 1.5, which is high. The closer wells are drilled together, the more that B factor will bend to be less than 1.5. So instead of it bending like this, it's going to see interference and it's going to be a BO 1. And then if it's even closer, it's a BO 0.8. But just for the argument's sake, I'm using a BO 1.5, a terminal decline of 6%, and that's how I'm generating my type curve. Now, that means that in the first year, we're producing around 17% of the total oil. So a million barrel well, we're producing 17%. Right. If the B was only one, you'd produce like 25 to 27%. Again, it depends on IPs and rates and stuff, but just in a general right. sense. So I've built a spreadsheet that says 100 barrel a foot well, year one does 173,000 barrels is a 10,000 foot. Year two does 137, year three does 103. So over the first seven years, we're going to produce 68% of the total oil. So far, so good. Okay. The GOR is 2,000. So here's the gas, and we're going to use a low water oil ratio of one. This is how easy the math is. So let's go OPEX. <laughs> okay. Every day a pumper goes, he has a truck. My experience has been between seven and $10,000 a well month is the fixed cost. 12 months in a year, so we're gonna say $120,000 in fixed cost, and we're gonna hold that flat just for fun. Then we're gonna say variable. Now this is chemical costs, this is the depreciation of your rods, this is ESPs, this is um, all that stuff. We're gonna say 225 a barrel for oil, which I don't think is that wrong. So in the first year, we're gonna do variable operating cost of oil of $867,000, pretty easy. Carry that formula down. Then we're gonna go gas, and we're gonna say there's probably 75 cents of cost on gas times that. Oops. But the, the, whole, point <laughs> of this, the whole point of this is this is literally how easy it is to calculate shale economics. If you know the type curve, you can just punch in numbers and then we can figure out exactly what they're worth. There's the gas and the water. 
to dispose is a buck a barrel, let's say, because yeah. it's going it's to be a disposal well. We're not trucking because trucking equals bad times a thousand. So here are our operating costs. I mean, it's literally that simple. So per year, sum that bad boy up. That's how much we'd expect in cost is $1.4 million in the first year. And of course, because they're so high variable, your costs decline, but your profitability changes too. So right. there's our OPEX. Now let's use CapEx, okay? We're drilling a 10,000 foot well. For argument's sake, let's call it $8 million. Boom. Now there's infrastructure, facilities, H2S, et cetera. Most people, when they announce their completed lateral foot costs, they don't include facilities. So we're gonna also include 500,000 a well for facilities. Again, people can change the numbers all they want. Right. Those are the inter, those are the lays. So now $40 a barrel, we're gonna say it's $40 flat. We're gonna say it's 250 at MCF gas and that's flat. Okay, royalties are 25%, taxes, which is ad valorem plus production tax, is 7%. Yeah. It's amazing, so man. Equals the uh, oil. Actually, I'm going to even do this the other way. We're going to do revenue first. So, for gas, for, so we only have two products that we actually sell oil, we're going to produce 173,000 barrels times the price that I assume. We're going to do and then times a thousand because I got to scale it. So first year revenue, $6.9 million. Now carry that forward. That's what you get. Gas, which is why I always call it a waste product, is we take gas times the gas price times a thousand. Woo! Very exciting. What did I do wrong? Why? Did I use too many numbers? Uh, no. That's a really large number. Oh, I don't need to times by a thousand because I did for MCF. There we go, 649. So you can see the ratio of, of oil revenue to gas revenue is 10 to one. Yeah. So the reason that operators flare is because like the gas has zero value at 250. And for a long time with Waha, we were trading at a dollar or 50 cents or zero. And there was H2S. At H2S, you add a buck in MCF for processing and all of a sudden gas becomes a, a loss leader. So that's the total revenue. Now we can reduce that by the taxes and the royalties. And we're going to multiply that by the sum of the oil plus the gas. And this will be the net revenue. So you're going to make $5 million in the first year. And then we're going to scale down. And I want to change this. Oh, I know what I did wrong. F4, right? We got to use F4 to make those variables not change. F4, perfect. Now I can drag it down. So let's just run the, the simple economics of this. So I made $5 million that cost me 500,000 in facilities, 8 million in wells, and 1 million in OPEX. So my first year, I'm negative 4.7 million cash flow. Yep. Then I generate 2.9 net, so I'm still net negative. I finally broke even around three years. And after seven years, my total cumulative undiscounted amount of money that I've made on my $8.5 million investment is 
Now, that's not horrible, but it's also not really that good. Right. Then if we just use like a cash flow multiple just to get the terminal value of this, let's call four times cash flow, which is four times a million bucks. The rest of the well discounted at 10% would be worth roughly $4 million. So now all we need to do is apply a discount factor to this to give a 10% discount. And the formula for that is we take the sum of this times one plus the interest rate, which is 10% to the year that we're in, which is one. So, I know what I did, didn't use a multiplier. But this is, again, anyone who wants to walk through this at any point, we can like chat. Hell yeah, dude. One divided. I want this spreadsheet. Yeah. Um, and then you go through and you do a net present value of each of these, changing the number of years that it's been to three, four, five, six, and seven. Sum that up. plus this, which is the residual value, means that roughly you're paying $7 million of, if you paid $7 million today, you would get a 10% return on that $7 million. But in order to get that, you need to invest $8.5 million. So it's fine, you're generating like a 1.9 ROI on your investment. But that's not really good. Right. Like in terms of the reason that investors have left our industry is because the math doesn't work. If, right. I make, if I make the well worse or the royalties higher or the OPEX higher, and I don't go through quite so fast on this, I've picked one of the best wells in America, used the type curve and said like, what's this worth? It's just not worth that much. Right. That's, that's the core issue with our industry. <clears throat> so out of all of that, the thing that's going to change is that 17%. So between oil and gas in that spreadsheet, that's going to be yeah. like 80. Or I'll take it back. It should have been 80 if geology was able to keep up with what was happening in horizontal drilling and the technology of fracking. But we couldn't. And we still aren't there. But we're close. And so did, did, did you depressurize a massive reservoir that had a lot more oil to give? Uh, probably. Can you go back in there and fix that? Maybe an engineer can figure that out. But I think what we will see, single well, good, solid economics, drastically increase in specifically the ratio between oil and brine. See, we call it water. Technically, that's very bad way to call it. It's not water. You can't drink. You can't do anything. It, it holds all the answers, actually. The brine ratio is going to change. Instead of what you were doing like a one-to-one, -one, most of that brine is going to be sucked up into the oil column. The total amount of fluid will be drastically more oil than brine because we actually know how this system is, is working and how it needs to be treated to carry the oil better than the brine. Yeah. We'll get there.
one of these days. I mean, so yeah, and, and again, geology makes things better because we know the volumetrics, we know the rock, and we can stimulate with, instead of just a hammer to everything, maybe there's some differentials we can do. So everything is about tweaking the capital barrel to get a better type curve. But recovery factors are a thing. Type yep. curves exist because thousands of wells have gone on the same curve. That's right. We're already maxed out on what completion technology can do in terms of lateral length prop per foot. Right. So that's the math. And the reason our industry was hiding from this was because oil used to be $100. Right. Now oil is 40 and that is the core issue. So if you have any questions on that at every point, email me. Troy, thank you so much for having me on. This was great. Yeah, um, man. I apologize for not being able to do it live, but you can always email me at drw at hottakeofthedaycom and I'm happy to walk through any of uh, the stuff we talked about. Right on, man. I'm going to crop this all out, put it on the live show. I'll send it to you and uh, we'll go from there with conversations, I guess. Awesome. Cheers, man. Right on, brother. See ya. Bye.